But right now, it is time to, well, say kia ora, welcome in uh, to Hayden Donnell. And I guess, are we going to start with the election? No, I'm going with the biggest story of the week this time, <laughs> Mark. Not the election. I'm talking about the alleged desecration <gasps> of the hallowed Ranfurly Shield by partying Hawke's Bay oh. rugby players. That is the absolute blockbuster that I'm going to begin with. And I'm not alone in giving this story the prominence it deserves. This was the lead story on the news at 5pm on Monday's episode of RNZ Checkpoint. Yeah. New Zealand Rugby says it hasn't contemplated drug testing the Ranfurly Shield after social media images emerged of a white substance and a rolled-up banknote on the trophy amid Hawke's Bay celebrations over the weekend. Now, that story was not just a lead on the news. It was also at the top of the agenda once the show itself began. So here's the host, presenter Susanna Leatawa, introducing the show itself. This is Checkpoint on RNZ National. I'm Susanna Leatawa. E Hariakinei coming up. Deeply disappointed, New Zealand Rugby launches an investigation into the antics of the Ranfurly Shield winning Hawks Bay side. We ask the union CEO if players were snorting drugs off the famous log of wood. So did Susanna follow through on that promise? Did she ask the question? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost oh. insulting that you'd even have to ask the question. This is a rigorous journalist that we're dealing with here, sometime host of RNZ Nights, fill-in host yes. when you're not around, Mark. <laughs> uh, she absolutely did put that question uh, to the Hawks Bay rugby boss, Jay Campbell. Here she is putting it. Were players snorting cocaine off the shield? Uh Look, I guess in terms of those social media um, images that are circulating around, uh, NZR have, have opened an investigation and, and Hawks Bay Rugby Union are supporting them 100% as we try and, and work through uh, kind of what's fact and what's fiction. Sharp intake of breath from Jay. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that question. You could see him going through all the permutations, oh. so you can almost sense it, yes. of his answer there. Uh, now, I have to confess that at this stage, I did feel all but sure that the white powder in question was, in fact, a drug of some description on the old logger wood. But the following day, a new twist in the tale emerged. Now, this is the revelation. Now, I have to say, uh, Hayden, that uh, the revelation was on nights, on Monday night. Oh, so was it actually on nights? On Monday night? I wasn't Monday listening evening? in. Yeah. So I've credited stuff it. with this breaking no, news story. Stuff, there are hours behind us. Hours, so you got James Dwan. James was a character who met Muhammad Ali, I'll have you say, in the street in Sydney at one stage as well. But nonetheless, he was uh, quite sure that he was responsible for the white powder because it was plaster of Paris that he had used to put the Ramfield Shield back together again when it was restored the last time, which was yes. just a few months ago. Yeah, that's and always he says res- that the dust was from that. I'm pretty sure that that's what it was. You find that you find that that, uh, that that explanation is credible. James is an honest man. He's a he's a, a silversmith from uh, um, Why can I? You know, he wouldn't put me. Wrong. You're absolutely buying that 100. percent You're nice guy swallowing here. that one hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> You're, you're snorting that straight off the shield. So, I mean, I'm I blowing mean, it. What I'm are not you thinking about? What, 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 why was the rolled up banknote there? But look, it's a likely story. I'll accept it. If you think that that's the case, then that that's what Mark. It's a Mark Leishman approved tale there. Yep. Also, I don't want to. I don't want to cast aspersions on James's 
craftsmanship or no. anything, but he strengthened it. It's an oak shield. He yeah. strengthened it with plaster of Paris. And well, it's broken clean in half after being apparently dropped on a kitchen floor. Yeah. Well, he did offer to put a bronze sort of piece of metal through the middle, but the rugby union said that was too expensive. <laughs> right, so he had to do plaster of Paris. Well, apparently it can break after being dropped on a floor. Uh, that's uh, That had almost... <sighs> I mean, some of these explanations, I I hope that the investigation by NZ Rugby really gets to the bottom of this because I feel like there's more to come on this story, to be honest. It could be, uh, yes, there's more to it. Um, Was all the effort worthwhile? The, the, The media has put in a lot on this story. I feel like this is the greatest dissection of a night of inebriated frivolity mm. since Boris Johnson's lockdown parties. I've gone forensic on it. Whether it was all worthwhile, <laughs> I opinions do vary. Because, yeah. I mean, not everyone does seem to care that much about this story. At least going by this classic vox pop put together by Felix Walton for RNZ's Checkpoint. That's the disrespecting the shield. Silly buggers. Naughty, 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 bad, bad boys. They must have been a bit drunk, eh? They must have had a bit too much beers, eh? I mean, I think it's kind of funny. I I mean, I know there's tradition and stuff, but um, end of the day, it's a game. Now, that wasn't the only kind of funny Ranfurly shield story out there this week. Several people on social media, or Ranfurly Shield content, should I say. Mm. Several people on social media weighed in with their own stories, which may indicate that despite its storied history, the log of wood hasn't always been treated with the utmost reverence. So among those telling the story was, well, their story was, the former radio announcer for the hits, Emma Hallur, who Mm. said... She was once charged with taking care of the shield at a promo event, and at the end of the promo event, no one came to claim it. And so she thought, well, what should I do? I'll just take it home. She had a couple of drinks with the Ramfurly shield <laughs> sitting on her mantelpiece. She proved this. This wasn't just a tall tale. She had a picture of it on her mantelpiece. Several people replied to her with their own photos of them mishandling this supposedly sacred shield. So I think that it's been around the traps a little bit. It hasn't always been taken care of. hasn't always been treated as sacred. But uh, some commentators weren't so sanguine about the shield being treated in this manner. The aforementioned James Dwan, he wanted to put a stop to this kind of silly business. He proposed a solution on One News. This is it. Whoever holds the shield, it needs to have a guardian of the shield doesn't go anywhere without him. Basically a bodyguard for the shield. Someone that accompanies it. Did he tell that to you as well? He did. He suggested uh, back in the day in uh, Auckland had the shield, Peter Fatialofa, the great Samoan front rower. He he was the guardian and no one came near the shield if he didn't want you to. (laughs) Did he have the shield on his body at all times? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure he used it as a shield, but he carried it around and just kept an eye on it. Okay, so it's an appointed guardian of the shield. basically. You're just sworn to protect it with your life That's sort right. of thing. Yeah. I get it. I, I mean, fair enough. Yeah, someone that someone that keeps an eye out for it, I can understand. But whether it's a full-time responsibility, I'm not sure that we have the money for that. No. Uh, sports commentator Scotty Stevenson, another person that was very upset, did not see the funny side of things in this. And here he is chatting to Newstalk ZB's Heather Duplessis-Allen. To see a group this stupid, this thoughtless and this careless in charge of something that has this much mana, uh, and frankly, the posts laughing about the situation, and again, as I said, maybe doing much worse with the broken Ranfurly Shield. 
uh, frankly, just uh, makes me uh, angry and uh, and I'm emotional about it. I think mm. it is a disgrace. Mm, there you go. So yes, and exactly. Consider yourself rebuffed, Hawks Bay mm. Rugby Union players at not quite the level of objective remove and sense of humour about the situation dis- uh, that was displayed in the classic RNZ's uh, Vox Pops. We had a, uh, a text in the Ramfilly Shield Saga rugby, a game of two halves. Ooh, had to say it. Sharp intake of breath from me there. <laughs> I would never presume to disrespect the Shield in such a manner. No. But, that, but of course I respect all views. Anyway, if everyone you know can't see the humour in the story, it has been a bit of a welcome break that Ramfilly Shield from from the election. Yeah, it? just an oasis in a in a desert, really. Eh, of, of election content, no one seems to be in. Everyone's getting tetchy about the election. There's angry accusations and claims being fired back and forth, and no one's happy. And some people are having a really tough time of it, none more so than Winston Peters and Jack Tame, who mm. juked it out in a very bruising encounter in the octagon of debate known as the Q&A studio this Sunday. And this was a really fiery interview, fiery euphemistic, really. Mm. Uh, it mostly consisted of Peters being tested by incisive and well-researched questions and responding by lashing out with insults and recriminations. And... One political reporter, intrepid political reporter, AAP's Ben Mackay, actually catalogued all the insults that Peters levelled at Tame. And they were, and I think this is actually in order of least favourite to favourite yep. uh, for, for Ben Mackay. So all the insults, they were arrogant, liar, vindictive, waste of taxpayers' money and viewers' time, corrupt, I'll say that again, corrupt, lousy, woke fellow traveller, smart aleck. I quite like smart aleck. <laughs> Philadelphia lawyer. Uh, it's an oldie, but a goodie. Oh, yeah. uh, muckraker, that absolutely rolls off the tongue. I'd love, I'd, I love to call people muck, muckraker. Yeah. Muckraker Mark. Yeah, I could call you. <laughs> that's right. You're a muck. That, muckraker Mark rolls oh, off the tongue. Oh, that's me to a T. And Ben's favourite was uh, dirt merchant. Yeah, pond scum would have been a good one. That would have yeah. Been well, we can probably put those. You can jot those down for Winston for, for the for next Q and A. Yeah. Insults are nothing new, are they, for for Winston, though? I mean, it's been pretty much his stock and trade, isn't it, when it comes to journalists particularly? No, and several people have noted that, and his antagonistic stance, they say, is something of a tactic. Well, who would have thought? Uh, Now, Jack Tame himself actually said that during the interview. This is what he said. I think we all understand the tactic. You come in here, you huff and puff and hurl insults around... I get it. For people at home, it might be entertaining. Oh, no, These no. are serious times worthy of serious leadership. If you are unable to answer straight questions about your policy, your competence, I've and your integrity, that that's on you. So that was a very stern rebuff from uh, his retort, I guess, to mm-hmm. Winston Peters from Jack Tame. And others did dredge up other information about this tactic. There was an article by TVNZ's John Campbell last month where he described a conversation he had with Peters during, a, well, after a particularly antagonistic interview around 25 years ago. And apparently in the space of an ad break or half an ad break, Peters explained to John Campbell that the more he seemed at odds with the mainstream media, the more his voters liked him. So John Campbell had a bit of an epiphany mm. at this. He realised that this... Oppositional interview conferred upon him the status of an outsider, a maverick, a whistleblower, someone speaking truth to power. And so ever since then, every time he's seen or heard Winston Peters being interviewed, 
he's suspected that he's speaking over the head of his interviewer mm-hmm. directly to those who see him as their man, anti-establishment, anti-all establishments, mm-hmm. the politician you trust when you don't trust politicians. And a lot of that was John Campbell's words, not my own, if they sounded very eloquent. But basically, <laughs> the insults Marvelous. and recriminations can be seen in that light. So I think in this case, there were times Peter's seemed genuinely rattled moments where he pushed the friction a bit far and probably further than even he was wanting to do so this is when what he hinted at interfering in tvnz's operations yeah there was actually not one but two sort of implied threats to tvnz's editorial independence in this interview and i'll just play one of them this is the last of them but it ended the interview you have thank railed you, Jack, against you, co-governance. Thank you, Jack. You've just made a hopeless case here. You've, it's a good you've, case you've railed for, us to, for us to make sure we get the broadcasting portfolio after this election. Is that a threat, Mr Peters? <laughs> no, it's not a threat. It's a promise that you're going to be, have an operation that's much more improved than what it is now. It's you, just an idea. Thank you for your time. Good luck in the campaign. <laughs> yeah, well, I believe that, Jack, like I believe half the other bulldust you just said. New Zealand First Leader, Winston Peters. There he is. Well, now, so that is a bit of a threat, you'd have to say. He was very displeased with how that interview went. He threatened to improve TVNZ's operations, which I imagine would uh, involve having fewer of these bulldust-filled interviews, I guess. And that's a bit reminiscent of an earlier Q&A interview, maybe I think it was late last year, December last year, with Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson, where he told Tame, you're doing a very negative interview today, I'm very disappointed in you, and he spoke about Tame's so-called national mates, among other things. And those comments, they were also highly ill-advised, given Jackson's position as Broadcasting Minister. But I'll note that Tame did afterward tell Newstalk ZB he's friendly with Jackson and he took the comments as a joke. Peters, on the other hand, didn't seem as comical. He described his threat as a promise. I don't think Jack Tame has seen too much humour in them. It seems somewhat reminiscent of going back a long way to Rob Muldoon and Simon Walker and those sorts of interviews. Brian Edwards, I think, uh, would have had a bit of a clash or two with Muldoon. Mark, I'm 38, my friend. but Some will remember. Some will remember. remember. Those were the days. And I think Winston Peters has taken a few leaves out of... Probably. Well, wasn't he um, mentored by? Yeah, well, he was in the very early days. Yeah, yeah, 1974. Because he's been in there since he's been in there a little while. Yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, what really got him racked up, if you like, worked up about this interview? Yeah, I think Tame's questions and overall preparedness. He's he's just a very good political interviewer. He's been really good this election, Mm. but it made it difficult for him to retreat into his usual antagonism and bluster and. There's actually a tactic that Tame uses, and I've noticed this in multiple interviews, Mm. where he asks for a figure. Usually it's a very basic figure, a figure underlying a policy. The interviewee will usually fail to provide that figure, and then Jack Tame will helpfully deliver the figure in question. Mm. So here he is employing it, this tactic, on National's finance spokesperson, Nicola Willis. I'm just doing the maths, okay? So... Um, in 2018, before the foreign buyer ban was lifted, mm-hmm. how many purchases, as a percentage of overall purchases in New, in New Zealand, did foreign buyers represent? I don't have that number right okay. now. Okay, I, I do. It's 3%, right? No worries. I've got gotcha. it for you. Don't worry, Nicola. Now, that was him interrogating the feasibility or otherwise of Nationals foreign buyers tax. Yes. And he was would go on to say he was a bit incredulous at the, the 
some of the projections being made by the party. And he had those numbers in front of him. The same device was employed multiple times in his interview with Winston Peters. Uh, so here's the first time on New Zealand First's apparent policy to build a separate prison for gang members. So how many people will it hold? We'll hold the required number that there is now. And what is the required number? If you just go and have a look now, this is not complex. Mm. Ask yourself how many gang members are in prison now. And put I'm asking you, how, how many yeah. gang members are there in prison now? Well, I, it depends what way do you talk about. Are they uh, new how, or how, they many, how many gang-affiliated prisoners are there in New Zealand prisons, according to corrections now? No one has that record. Oh, corrections does. 2,700. Oh, I thought it more than that. Whew, <laughs> ruffle there. <laughs> Peter sort of thought he had him on the ropes there, didn't he? he but did. then he, he came back with the exact figure, 2,700. That wasn't even the only time he used this. This is the second time, and this is on what was... It's actually a one-line promise from New Zealand first, but it says that it will fund residential care for seniors. Mr Peters, it is a straight question. Are you going to keep quiet while I answer, answer the question? OK, according to Eldon... No. The average cost not per person is $1,400 a we're not, year. We're not moving on. So, so there are currently 865,000 New Zealanders over the age of 65. So if just 10% of the over 65 population receive residential care as per your one-sentence policy, New Zealand First will fund residential care for the age, the cost to New Zealand taxpayers would be $6.2 billion a year. It's extraordinary. Now, Peters wasn't actually going to supply that number, and I suspect he didn't actually have it on him. But he struggled to deliver to deliver any of these numbers that Tame was asking for. And at multiple times, he actually simply just turned away from his interviewer and started talking directly into the camera. Mm. And it's sort of like what John Campbell noted there, right? He was speaking past his interviewer, except for he wasn't just doing it metaphorically. He was literally doing it. He was speaking to the camera front on yeah, yeah front on is it fair for him to ask politicians these figures when you know he clearly has them to hand himself and yeah. probably knows that they don't yeah exactly so is it a bit tricky a few people have asked me this and john key on he once got frustrated at this style of questioning sort of mm. thought of it as a gotcha and asked for interviewers to give him a heads up if they want to discuss a particular stat i remember back as well remember when the australian green party leader i think adam brandt he was hailed uh, for telling a reporter to Google it, mate, when he was asked for the current uh, <laughs> an economic stat. So is it fair to ask politicians to have these stats running in their heads all the time? Maybe mm. not if it's just one of these economic stats. But I do see the worth in what Tame's doing for a few reasons. First, these are not like these are not the current. I mean, these mm. are not obscure economic stats that vary day to day. These are the basic underpinning numbers for a lot of major policies that these politicians are touting. Mm. So it, it's not a moving target. It should They should have it. And if they can't actually name how much their policies are going to cost, like in the instance of the foreign buyers, you, well, you should know exactly how many foreign buyers are in the market mm. before they were banned from the market because that will impact on your projections in, uh, for 2023 or four. Mm. And uh, so it's actually kind of a measure of basic competence. Does a politician know what they're talking about? Mm. I think most importantly, it catches politicians when they're trying to fudge and obfuscate. Because I think a lot of these figures, 
they are awkward. They call some of the policies into question, and so politicians try to get out of saying them because they know that they will make them look a little bit shaky. And、mm. so they say, "Oh, I don't have it," or "I'll get back to you." Maybe they do have it, and they just don't want to say it.、Mm. And Tame shows that these figures are actually easily accessible, not just for the person touting these policies, but for a sufficiently motivated interviewer. And in doing so, I think he implies that the politicians who don't Have them or say they don't have them, there might be a bit of willfulness、mm. in their ignorance. There,、mm. I think that's worthwhile. Yeah.、Uh, well, speaking of、uh, politicians being elusive.、Uh, Christopher Luxon has received some criticism for ducking out of interviews. Yeah, Māori media in particular has had a difficult time getting hold of the National Party leader. He's turned down an interview with Mihingarangi Forbes on RNZ's Mata Moana Maniapoto for Tiao with Fakata Māori, or on Fakata Māori. Uh, to Alwith Moana on、mm. Fakata Māori. Now another interviewer who's had a hard time pinning Luxon down is Stuff's Tova O'Brien. So on her election podcast, Tova, she said Luxon's team has turned them down three times, and she issued this reproach for the national leader. At least we're in good company. Christopher Luxon is also refusing to do interviews with Mihingarangi Forbes for Mata and Moana Maniapoto on Te Ao. But come on, Luxon. Everyone else is speaking to us. We've all talked to Chris Hipkins already. Let us give you balance. Come speak to our audiences. They're voters too. They have a right to hear from you. What's your problem? Don't be so luxadaisical. Luxadaisical.、Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's some scripting there. The spin-off's gone by lunchtime. Also, has been turned down. Apparently, they published a story today saying they they'll they're willing to be grouped together with all of those other media and interview Luxon simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that's one solution there if it's a timing issue. So Chris Luxon also was accused of、uh, being a chicken for pulling out of the press leaders debate. That was the leaders debate、uh, in Christchurch that、um, Chris Hipkins was going to do via Zoom ultimately. Yeah, well,、COVID. there's a few different permutations that、right. people went through there. The Labour said it. Alfred Grant Robertson is a stand-in. National said that's a lie. Then the press's editor Camilla Hayman confirmed that Labour had offered Robertson as a stand-in. It's all a big drama.、Yeah. Look, if I was a cynical person, I'd say I suspect Luxon. Luxon's advisers don't see a whole bunch of upside and quite a lot of potential downside in some of these interviews and debates.、Mm. When you're sitting ahead in the polls, perhaps it's better to just say as little as possible until the voting is done and not trip over a, a, on a tree root at the、mm. last second. And thank,、uh, look, I might be cynical, but thankfully I'm not alone in having such a gnarled and twisted soul. <laughs> in her politics bulletin for the New Zealand Herald, Audrey Young also mused that Luxon's reason for refusing to front the debate might be. Because he has every reason to avoid another debate, and it's not because he's a weaker debater. But when you're ahead in the campaign, there is no good reason to give your opponent the chance of getting ahead.、Mm. In other words, you have the lead, play defense in football parlance, park the campaign bus, which is at least under- understandable, isn't it? It makes sense. Yeah, you can understand the political calculus、mm. behind it for sure, but it's not great. And this might sound a little highfalutin, but from the perspective of democratic accountability, and I think particularly when it comes to those Māori media outlets, it's concerning because National has a number of policies which will have a material impact on Māori. It intends to commission the Māori Health Authority for one. It's signalled opposition to co-governance, and if Luxon refuses to front up to Māori media, predominantly Māori audiences, that can leave the impression that National wants to implement these changes without explaining them to the people that they affect the most. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly good to see、uh, Chris Luxon front up to the hui. 
Yeah, and it's worth noting uh, he did front up to Julian Wilcox on the Hui, and he was pressed on several matters. And I think we'll just play the first of them. But this is uh, Julian Wilcox questioning Luxon on National's commitment to do away with the Māori Health Authority. All the research says that this will yeah, work. And we come through a values base to say we believe in localism and devolution and we believe in powering up community organisations, okay. iwi organisations, Māori education, health providers, do the lot. But we want one coherent governance of public services and within that we can have certainly innovation to be able to deliver and deploy services so that we get results. I am obsessed on results and outcomes and I see a government that e- focuses on... Even though on the research and the researchers and the academics and the GPs and the Māori Health Service are saying the outcomes will be achieved on the current system you're still saying that your way's better i think we can power up i think we can power up maori health providers and do a good job yeah there was an interesting segment in the interview as well that i thought i'd highlight and this was luxon being asked whether he'd rule out one of uh the potential coalition partner his one of his potential coalition partner acts policies which is holding a referendum on the treaty so here's that will you commit now here on the hui that a referendum on the treaty will not be held under your Prime Minister? Yeah, it's not our policy, and I think it's actually divisive, and so that's why we don't support it. Okay, but but you can guarantee under your Prime Ministership there will not be a referendum on the That's our position as leader of the National Party. That's what I've got to say. You know, that's not what I've got to say. That's what I believe, uh, as I don't think that's helpful. I think it is divisive, and it's not something we're supportive of. Okay, I know it's your policy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you can see where I'm going here. I just, you know, the the question is fairly clear. If you are to be Prime Minister, you're the one ultimately that will make the call. I think a referendum on a name change of the country, you know, Aotearoa, New Zealand is something that you'd, you'd, you'd go forward with. Mm. Quite a strange segue there, because that wasn't really what was being asked. He was being asked about a referendum on the treaty. Yes. Now, that's become a bit of a tried and true interview technique for Luxon, where he gets challenged on something that's a bit awkward. He retreats into a slightly safer territory, a prepared line, mm. not quite addressing the question at hand. And I think it had Chris Hipkins in the last News Hub debate just yelling at him, he won't answer the question. Mm. Uh, why won't you answer the question? I think... That, that, that does frustrate uh, his opponents, at least, and possibly some media. But we never got a straight answer on whether he'd rule out that act policy. But credit to Wilcox, he did get some pretty strong language there. Luxon saying that it was divisive and he wasn't in support of it. And that's pretty strong language. It made other news and it probably, when it comes down to it, makes it pretty unlikely that we will get that referendum that mm. act is proposing. Mm. Uh, a lacklustre media debate. What was, which one was this one? Apart this was the held pres- earlier this week, I think, at the Grayland Library. The, the the debate was almost notable for how uh, media has almost dropped off the agenda. National and Act didn't even bother to show up. Mm. And this is funny because we had the RNZ TVNZ merger, the Public Interest Journalism Fund, all this stuff in the last term. It's all kind of dropped away and there's nothing like that to come. Maybe just the digital bargaining code to make social media companies pay and even National doesn't support that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Duncan Greb did a write-up of it. I'd recommend that to you. The, one of the takeaways was that they barely mentioned TikTok, Facebook or Instagram. Mm-hmm. And those are really the sources of discontent for media companies as younger audiences move away to from mediums like TV and radio and those social media companies mm. steal their revenue as they see it or just, you know, get more effective ad dollars spent on them. Yeah.
remarkable. Actually, I was talking last week about uh, Shane Jones. His he's a, on TikTok and he gets he got four hundred and sixty thousand views or something. Oh, it was a good TikTok though from Shane. <laughs> I do know the one you're talking about. He's founded. He's if he doesn't win Northland, he's got a career. Yes, he'll be back in. Power. And I understand you and uh, and Colin have another. You, you've picked out something else that. Colin's yeah, I, got this wrong. is my weekly my biweekly uh, lambasting of Colin Peacock. He's mm. screwed up again on Sunday's <laughs> show. He said that the Food and Grocery Council represents retailers. Not not really accurate. It could be interpreted as they represent supermarkets. In fact, they represent suppliers and wholesalers and often go into battle with supermarkets. Media Watch regrets the error. Lucky you never make mistakes. Absolutely have never done it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you would not be able to find any, and I would not encourage anyone to actually go looking.